welcome to the Anime Podcast. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the GameStop shares and uh, the implications of the stock market. A little bit of the history, sort of a, a crash course in sort of 80-90 years of stock market history. Uh, we do think that very often uh, anarchists and leftists in general have a big gap of knowledge when it comes to things like the stock market uh, because one, it's incredibly boring, but second of all, uh, it's very much the plaything of the rich and people like us that don't have much money don't gain much from the stock market so it tends not to interest us or affect us but it has huge implications on the world and geopolitical factors so it's always worth to have a look at and as it's relevant now seems the time to do it uh so i am your host james today i'm going under the jitsi handle of adam games smith we have got returning host uh shit stop stocks or other known as alex say hello alex hello alex only does that joke every single time uh that i say that so this is why this is why i never made it in comedy yeah if anything he's consistent which is um uh at least an essential part of the the comedy um, i should be work. i should be working for bbc it'd be great you know? yeah. <laughs> this is like the daily mail the daily mail uh and we have our new co-host with us uh one episode so far so this is their second one it's suzanne with the name stonks hello hey how are you right so we'll get into it i guess you did ask how I am, but I'm Scottish, so it's just going to be long and boring, and I'll just be whining. So it's better to just get on with the episode. I can give you. Uh, a head, I can. I can headbutt you if you like. Yeah. Sort of <laughs> ah, it feels like home. Yeah. So basically, we're going to start with the the topical stuff, uh, as most people already know, and we're not going to get we're not going to go too into it because there's already been hundreds and hundreds of explainers of um what happened but gamestop shares shot up in the the stock market and uh, sent a lot of hedge fund managers uh, into a tizzy the basic the real basic outline of it is that these people were betting the hedge fund people were betting against the stock uh, of GameStop shares and other people were able to buy them and make that bet invalid or it was wrong and so people lost money. That is the very, very basic outline of it. So who wants to go into a little bit more detail? Uh, Suzanne actually is an economist, so she'll be able to say this much more succinctly or at least bring more detail to it. So just another few additions. So there is a Reddit subreddit, um, I think it's called Wall Street Bets. And it's been described by various people who seem to know know about Reddit and seem to know about these people that as kind of a form of online HN betting community. Um, and a few people, uh, I think um, one of the links at the bottom of the podcast uh, will has an interview. One of the people who, who made quite a lot of money off this uh, uh, his sale of. Um, GameStop shares, but he about I think in December said, "Hey, I I I I've bought like uh, two hundred thousand GameStop's uh, shares. You should do that." And people and it started gaining momentum in, in January, and I, a week or two ago, um, it shot up from something like seven dollars a share or whatever exactly it was. It was it was low, to I think it peaked at about four hundred and twenty-seven or thereabouts dollars. Per share, uh, and this destroyed the ability of the hedge funds to actually make money by shorting the company. Because what 
again, it's for people who don't know about this, then uh, Suzanne will go into a bit about uh, <laughs> how this works. But uh, what the hedge funds were doing is they were not buying the shares, they were borrowing them. They were going to shareholders going, um, I'm going to borrow your share, I'm going to then sell it, and I'm going to pay you for the permission of borrowing it. After a certain amount of time, if the company goes down, I'll make money off that. And Suzanne can now explain how on earth that fucking works and how on earth they've lost something in the region of like, I think I've heard one statistic like three or four billion. But Suzanne, do you want to basically give the economist's view of what on earth is going on with shorting and why is it so unbelievably popular? Um, yeah, sure, I can try. Um, I'd say also, I wasn't sure I classify myself as an economist. I teach economics in secondary school, but I'm not sure how much of an expert I am. Um, but I, I think in terms of most people might have heard of shorting the market if they've ever watched The Big Short or linked it back to the financial crisis um, and the subprime mortgage kind of issue. So what ended up happening with GameStop basically was that, firstly, I think people definitely on the um, the Wall Street, the Reddit kind of kind of a thing what they thought was that originally the GameStop uh, shares were kind of valued at about five dollars and people thought that this was quite an under evaluation of the company and they thought that actually potentially the share should be worth about 16 dollars and they were saying something was going on and so basically I think it was around summer last year um what they discovered a lot of people who were looking into it was that and um, GameStop itself was one of the most shorted kind of companies in the US at the time and what that basically means is that so if you're going to short the market it's as Alex said is that you kind of are betting that the price of the shares are going to fall because that's what you want to happen and um, I don't know there was a guy called Mike Burry who also was famous during the financial crisis he made about 800 million pounds by shorting uh, mortgage bonds during the financial crisis and actually oddly enough he's made about 270 million from uh the GameStop sales that he made in the in the last kind of few months as well so what basically shorting is is kind of where um they so what say you say Alex for example you owned like one one dollar of like GameStop shares I'd come to you and say can I borrow that um I'll borrow off that share I'll give it back to you maybe in a year's time depending on the length of time and while I'm borrowing it I'll pay you interest so I'll pay you money and also to make sure that because you may not trust that I'll give it back to you I'll put some money in a bank account as well um every so often and so what happens is then I take say I buy that one share off you for say 10 pounds I'll then sell that uh, one share to somebody else um, I'll set it onto the market. And so what I'm hoping to happen is basically that in 12 months time, say when I want to, I have to give you back your share. I'm hoping that value of that share, instead of it being 10 pounds, now that share will be worth one pound. And so I'll buy back the share on the market. And I'll give you back your one share, but I'm only giving you back a share that's worth one pound instead of 10. And so in a sense, I bet against it because I bet that the price will go down. And so therefore I made like nine pounds on that. And that's kind of just a basic understanding of what shorting the market is. And what basically happened afterwards was when this became publicly known, a huge amount of people who, many of them who weren't on the Wall Street bets, but just generally heard about it in the news, they piled in. And some of them were even hedge fund people from other hedge funds. And um, and some were just normal people, day traders, I think they're called, who went onto the Robinhood app. Uh, and so what happened next was actually something that no one could have, I don't think it's maybe it's not never happened, but it's it's very rarely happened, which was that Robin Hood, um, and again, it depends on who you listen to about this, because there's uh, they've said one thing, and I'll tell you what they said, and maybe, James, you can give the real opinion of what happened. But they've said, after a couple of days of this frantic kind of speculation on the GameStop shares, they shut down any uh, purchasing of GameStop shares uh, because they said they're clearing 
in Clearinghouse is the name of it. Basically, the company that is a middleman between Robin Hood and the actual people who are uh, selling the shares said, okay, well, you now need to give us $3 billion or uh, we're not going to let you keep trading. And so they said, oh, we can't afford $3 billion, So we're not going to let anyone keep trading for, I don't know how many hours it was. Um, but And everyone's found it's a bit dodgy because <laughs> one of the companies uh, that... Um, owned Robinhood was Citadel Securities, I think it's called, who were, uh, I think, involved in the hedge fund. But anyway, again, this stuff is kind of confusing. So, James, you want to give what you think actually happened there? Well, I think when... So if you're a day trader, uh, usually you do it through a bank. And when you do it through a bank, you usually get charged a certain amount. And I, if I believe... Well, if I think correctly, the reason that is is because they're actually sort of going to buy the stock for you and so it's in it's the transaction fee of them finding someone that's selling the stock they buy it and then they give it to you that's usually the way that you would do it where something like robin hood i think it's that robin hood basically owns the stock and you're basically but it's in your account but they're the ones that sort of hold it and so that then has the that unprecedented thing where they were able to basically stop people from going and trading stock that way um, because they have cut out a middleman to some extent, but they've, they've made themselves another one. So from that point, it's very interesting because it shows you that it was capital effectively riling around itself and making itself, you know, safe from this um, and one way or the other, how much that was intended. I'm not sure, but, some people's reaction to it, um, especially people that were trading as well, showed you that how little that they actually understand the market because they were effectively saying that they were uh, it was a conspiracy. And the, the simple fact is is that the stock market's always a conspiracy. Um, like insider trading is rife. Um, it's unbelievable how much it goes on, and they're always on. You know. Most people are on a two-week delay from what the stocks look like unless you pay like $10,000 to get updated information. And most people obviously can't uh, access that. So it's a good example, though, to show you of sort of the way that that financial system works. Uh, so would I, does anyone want to pick me up on anything that I got wrong there or appraise me for, for good analysis? Um, no, I think I think praise. I think it's good analysis of it, and I do think I think what I find really interesting about the stock market, and also just kind of um, even having access to certain sorts of information about it and knowledge about it, whether it's you're a trader or otherwise, I do think it highlights a lot certain like the inequalities of knowledge that exists about stock markets, whether you're a trader or otherwise. A lot of lay people don't understand how it works, and yet it has a massive impact on you know a lot of things. And so I think that's one of the things that is really interesting to talk about. Yeah, so actually, let's go. Let's go way back when and start with the formation of stock markets. Um, as as we usually do in this podcast, um, we tend to get bogged down in in ancient history. Um, so we'll try and not do that. But uh, you have to remember that capitalism sort of came out of Protestant Europe. Uh, and then, you know, Catholic Europe picked up a little bit after. Um, 
but it had some sort of originally emancipatory faction to it because uh, you know mercantilism was against feudalism so you were sort of you know in some ways like going out of the, the feudal system to create these financial systems that made things a little bit more equal for the middle classes obviously the poor still got fucked what's kind of interesting now is that we're sort of going full back circle where we're effectively in a sort of financialized feudalism um and that's ultimately why capitalism will fail uh if we can't push it over in the meantime so does anyone want to go deeper into how the stock market actually really started uh without going back into fucking medieval uh feudalism and and kind of the origins of, of kind of trading of kind of agricultural debt you can pretty much or indeed even to antwerp or amsterdam or kind of the beginnings of the very first stock markets which were just like people gathering around kind of selling government bonds in in those in um, the local countries i think it's better to turn to something like the dutch east india company and the british east india company because that's really like mercantile capitalism gets its start off basically the quote-unquote discovery of the new world basically the rape and pillage of the new world uh by private these kind of private companies which had royal charters or in the case of um the dutch i think they were a republic at the time so a state charter anyway to go and and to uh, you know, through a combination of trade, through slave trade, through just plantations, um, money is made, and these uh, and and these companies had uh, you could for the first time, I think, or um, they were I think joint stock company again. Suzanne will correct me, no doubt. But you could buy shares in them for the very first time, uh, and so a lot of people in the middle class and the mercantile class started making a lot of money. Uh, for the very first time, they began to exert influence. And so in places like the Netherlands, you see a new kind of uh, capitalist mercantile class. In Britain, you see some people even said the English Revolution of the mid-17th century was connected to this. But certainly by about 1720, when you had the South Sea Company, uh, you see the very first uh, bubble which was known as the South Sea Bubble, where this company was given uh, control over, I think, the selling of slaves in South America. Uh, and all these people speculated on it before anything had happened. Um, and then when it actually started to do business, it did far less than they had speculated they would. And that was the very, very first right, economic crash. Uh, and so as early as like this period, you have identifiable uh, patterns that are being repeated today. Uh, Suzanne, do you want to throw in and correct me? No, I won't correct you. I think you've done it really well. I think the only thing I'd add is actually, I think around the same time in the Netherlands, there was another kind of speculative bubble that was created, which I always find really interesting. I think I learned about it in history. And um, I don't know if you remember it. It was like the tulip craze. I think it was around the 1630s where like people, I think tulips were brought over. Um, I can't remember which country they were brought from, but I think they suddenly were just brought over in trading routes. And what was really interesting is like the price of a tulip at one point ended up being equivalent to almost a full ship. And it was like this irrational kind of exuberance of like people purchasing and selling shares and selling things and, and selling and kind of creating volatilities in commodities. And I think it's just interesting that it's it kind of originated in the same kind of country where maybe the stock market, as you were talking about the site seat companies and things like that, kind of were created. Um, and so it's interesting that that volatility in markets also happened around the same time. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you can go even more... Uh, recently, again, we're not going to go heavily into this, but it should be said that there was very little credit controls. I mean, there was some controls. The South Sea Bubble led to, I think, a ban on any type of stock sharing until the 1820s, so about 100 years later. 
And there was now and again attempts, like when things went bad, they go, oh, fuck, you, you shouldn't be able to sell that uh, shares anymore because it's it's bad. Uh, but it wouldn't really be until the 20s um, that you'd see kind of a, a, almost a, a West, in quotation marks, wide acceptance that the, the danger of a speculative bubble was, was very, very uh, severe. Um, obviously, you have the crash in 1929, you have the Depression, rise of fascism, Second World War. And what comes out of that is this thing, we, we never want to do that again. We never want that series of events to happen. And so what you had then was the, the founding of what's known as the Bretton Woods system, which was trying to prevent that type of thing ever happening uh, again. Uh, and whether they were successful or not, you have the founding of the World Bank, the World Trade Organization, the IMF. Uh, you had gold linked to the dollar and all the other currencies in the world were linked to the dollar in turn. And there was some degree of stability. Now, again, people can debate that, but there was some degree of stability and people learned from the danger of the stock market, basically, after you know, from the experiences of the 1930s and 40s. I mean, this is kind of um, a good time then to bring up sort of the weird ideological underpinnings that exist when it comes to finances and money itself, because obviously back in the past, there was a sort of agreed idea of how much something was worth. Uh, you know, it was like worth this amount of gold or it was worth this amount of sheep. Uh, and what we started to find was that nah, all the money basically is like, it's only worth how much you collectively imagine that it's worth. And so that's just the baseline of money. And uh, we're now in a, uh, you know, in a world where billions are just invented every day, uh, but it only goes up, it really goes down. When you go to the bank to get a mortgage, that money is suddenly invented and you owe the bank that money by the virtue that you've owe it them. So, uh, but that money now exists uh, to some extent. And so it sort of shows you where the stock market is just lots of people pretending that there's this line that's all important. And if it goes up, it's good. If it goes down, it's bad. Uh, and it isn't too different from effectively slaughtering sheep to hope that the, the sun comes up the next day. Yeah, I think that was, I mean, we can debate the nature of money. What does money meant to mean? But you're right. It did. It used to be linked to and identify to metals, obviously the gold most famously, but silver as well in other countries. Um, you can kind of say that the end of Bretton Woods in 71 was an attempt by the Americans basically to un unhook their currency from this global system so they could basically keep printing money and, and you know, moving away from a system which was a lot kind of curtailing their ability to spend their way out of the problems they had, obviously the Vietnam War, but also problems of inequality and deindustrialization at the time. No, I just had an interesting question. I was listening to both of you talk about money and kind of the nature of money as well as what you're talking about at the end of the Bretton Woods. Because I, someone, I, there was a question that someone asked me once and I wasn't sure if I was able to answer it if you guys are thinking about it. Because someone said, why can't a bank just print as much money as it wants to kind of just get itself out? Like, why why is it such a bad thing to kind of print money to get out of a situation? Because apart, you can talk about inflation and inflationary pressures and things like that. But one of the things that's interesting about money and the reason why it's like it was based on promissory notes is that we have to have a belief in it, right? We have to believe that the money that we have is worth something, otherwise the whole system will go. So it's just interesting to think about why can't we print our way out or, or what is the reasons why? Sorry, well, I'll pick up on it. 
Yeah, no, I, but Dave McWilliams, who, whether you agree with him or not, is of the opinion, or was he of the opinion with the COVID crisis that's still ongoing, that you can actually just print your way out of the problem. And in fact, print the money, uh, put it into the economy. Uh, I don't know what the mechanism would be, but he said that there was a mechanism whereby that money, without even necessarily increasing taxes a huge amount, would be able to be brought back into the banks that printed it. Again, you can probably correct me on or explain how that works, but he seemed like it was pretty normal monetary theory. You could print money and and through a mechanism that I don't understand, that could go back into the coffers. Uh, again, maybe because it's all just made up anyway. I'm not sure if I can explain how it goes back in, but I know I know the kind of the mechanisms that they're using to print money. Like the moment with the COVID crisis in 2020, um, the I think the Bank of England has spent about, or they've created about 800 billion pounds worth of extra money, um, to a mechanism they call quantitative easing, which literally its simplest form is where they press a button, they create 800 billion worth of electronic money, and then through different channels in the economy try and fund that two different ways the problem is a lot of problems and people will debate it a lot of monitors in particular quantitative easing as we when we talk about the stock market as well qe doesn't always have an impact on the real economy so i don't really know how you funnel it back in but yeah that's, that's how they kind of tend to do it yeah but it yeah. doesn't just really briefly uh, james it, it doesn't have an effect on the real economy because most of the time it gets fucking stockpiled and hoarded by the fucking uh, tech companies or big corporations who end up spending it on their own shares yeah i mean this is the the underlying problem and why the GameStop stuff sort of shows you this the inequality in the system because billions is being invented every day and that's been you know that's been funneled through the rich uh in tax cuts or actually just given handouts as we saw with Rishi Sunak's you know like um eat out stuff um, to make sure that money was funneled directly to McDonald's for whatever reason. Um, and so that's why this, you know, you've got two economies. You've got the real economy where things are made, um, services are being produced, you know, things have are linked to some sort of coherent ideology, uh, ideology, but some sort of coherent um, base. So I get paid for my time, you know, I'm not... Uh, the amount of that I work, they say, oh, it's worth each hour is worth this amount of money, uh, and that's you know that's the real economy. The thing is, though, interest rates are so low at the moment. There's no point in saving money. So if you've got lots of money and you just hold on to it, it's not going to do anything. So you might as well spend it. And this is why the stock market, as the real economy goes further and further down, the, the stock market never is affected because you can just pile more and more money into there. Uh, and that's why, in a, in a large sense, the rich keep getting richer because if you're a day trader, um, you know, you're saying like the game stock shop, uh, sto uh, stocks were at $4. When I looked at it, it was $40. So roughly, in the, you know, if I wanted to get into it, probably been able to maybe buy three or four shares um and what they went up to 400 so that's you know if i had been arsed or thought about it or you know i would have made something that was all right you know maybe get you a new xbox help you pay rent but it's not going to do anything obviously if you're a billionaire you could put a couple of millions in there and it goes up um so these are these huge systemic issues that are are there in the stock market and that's why 
in some ways, we're seeing people trying to rewrite what happened in the, the GameStop thing because it's seen as that the, the plebs and the oinks have started to trade and get some money, and that's uncouth. So that's why you have Jimmy Kimmel basically saying that it must have been a, a Russian op rather than you know something that just existed in the system that it all you know that um it's an internal thing it's obviously like some people are seeing their living wage go further and further down and they're seeing other people get rich so they're thinking why don't i get me some of that as well um i mean there's a couple of things there which is i suppose i i'd actually like to hear what suzanne actually has to say about this but the if you look at things like okay well what's america or what britain or how does their economy functioning in the 70s uh why is it that so that until i think it was the 70s most countries certainly america and britain didn't count the stock market um as part of overall gdp uh why was there a general kind of view of the of, the, of um the kind of financial institutions as being but a lot of people kind of scumbags, kind of that it's something to the side of the economy, a kind of what it, what it is, which is a giant fucking Las Vegas, uh, you know, um, roulette wheel. Um, why has that now become that people, even including Yanis Varoufakis, one of the things you can watch at the bottom of the podcast, said, well, maybe what we need to do is just um, just have a society where we accept that the stock market is kind of controlling everything and that you'll be given shares at birth um, because even he can't really see a way around uh, the control, the, the financialization of, of the economy. I'd love to hear what uh, Suzanne has to say about why is it that the economy became so financialized and why it's so dominant now? I mean, I can hazard a guess. I'm not saying I'd be an authority on it, but I think I think some of it has got to do with just, I suppose, the underpinnings of economics itself. I suppose one of the things about I think one of the reasons why um, it may have become, particularly for some of the US, why it became more financialized in the 70s and 80s, um, some of it is just got to do with people wanting, investors wanting to make higher returns, um, I suspect. And so if you're in a system like, I think it was the 1970s, 1978, when I can't remember who's the name, but it was a banker who came up with um, something called mortgage-backed securities, um, which basically was where... Um, at the, at the time, I think in the US economy, they, you know, banks were making a modest amount of money, a modest amount of return on um, lending people, lending money for people to purchase, buy houses and giving out mortgages to people who could actually afford it. And, and it was fine. And that was there. But the banks weren't making a lot of return. And so I think some of the reasons why you have an economy that became more and more financialized is that you have um, bankers and other investors looking for higher, higher rates of return um, and they found that when they were able to create financial assets called like mortgage-backed securities, basically is where you're bundling together a bunch of mortgages and then you're selling that debt onto somebody else. So the banks would take the mortgages, bundle them together and sell it onto somebody else. Um, and then they did that again in the financial crisis. They created something called uh, CDOs and they even created synthetic, synthetic CDOs. But all of it comes down to, I think, looking for higher returns. And so, and if the government allows it and to deregulation like getting rid of Bretton Woods and things like that and then I suppose you can also then I suppose we can talk and bring in like politics and where politics and economics kind of have that interface because a lot of the lobbyists in the US and a lot of lobbyists and where a lot of the money is is in banks and I don't know if anyone can talk about how they actually would actually have an impact and in influencing um, 
politicians to actually deregulate and allow those types of profits to be made. And if that's allowed, I think you have an increase. And if, if you're, you know, someone who wants to make a lot of money, you go into finance because suddenly banking was exciting in the 80s. Money was to be had. And then I suppose if you're talking about more recent times, the 1990s, or after like post 2008, uh, interest rates are kept really low. And if interest rates are low, not only do you have access to cheap credit uh, cheap, and the corporations have access to cheap credit that, you know, the Fed and other banks are giving them for free or very cheap rates. Um, you're also an investor. You're not, you're not going to save your money because you're going to earn below. You're technically there's negative interest rates because if you take into account inflation, why would you keep money in a bank account? It would make sense to invest and you're just going to look for the highest return that you can. So really what we have to get to, um, which is, you know, is is the 2008 financial crisis uh, and how it's in many ways still ongoing and connected to what's going on at the moment with pandemic. Because um, we've kind of lived, still living in the world that Suzanne just described, the financialized world, in fact, even more so. Um, these days in the States, only about 15% of uh, basically kind of investment by banks goes in towards normal companies, certainly Main Street, as they call it in the States. Uh, the vast majority goes into the stock market um, and really doesn't, uh, uh, and, and the kind of the stock market in, in the States has a disproportionate influence. Only about 4% of the American workforce actually works in, in, um, in kind of financial institutions. And yet they have, uh, I think they account for something like 25% of gdp or something along those lines anyway um they have huge influence influence um even in areas where um certainly the halls of, of power they have enormous influence and which is why things like glass steagall were repealed by a democrat who the democrats were at least until formally meant to be social-minded liberals uh, until bill clinton came along with his uh, history of sexual assault and uh, <laughs> deregulation and so he brought in nafta he brought he removed glass steagall many other things as well. Um, and you kind of have Bush just continuing on, the American elite kind of fully embraced financialization. And what inevitably was bound to happen, happened in 2008, which was that eventually somebody thought of the genius idea of, hey, if we're selling mortgages, let's just dump a bunch of dog shit mortgages from people who had no ability to pay them the mortgage uh, off in amongst uh, all the good stuff. And we'll sell it on the international markets, we'll make it an absolute fortune. Uh, and when inevitably people, it became apparent that they couldn't pay these um, mortgages back, the whole fucking system collapsed. And um, one of the things, podcast, sorry, not podcast, uh, links at the bottom of the podcast is of a Vice News documentary, which while it was very forgiving of people like the, uh, of the Bush administration, they did point out something, which was that it was beyond their comprehension to think of another solution other than to just throw trillions at people like Bear Stearns and, and Lehman Brothers, because they couldn't imagine a world where, you know, financialization wouldn't continue. Um, if they had let those things collapse, uh, you would have had a Great Depression, which some would say we had anyway. Um, and they just said, well, we don't want to have that. And they basically, and to this very day, I think to some extent, haven't come up with an alternative to financialization, which is why you can have the world in the throes of a pandemic with millions and millions of people unemployed, but the stock market is chugging along with trillions and trillions, trillions and trillions pouring into it, much like it did in 2008. 
I think what if it, I because I remember being in college in 2008 and I was lucky enough to sit in on um Joe, I think it was Stiglitz he's an economist I don't know if you guys have heard of him and he was like actually giving a talk in Trinity and I remember it was around 2008 when all this was happening and he was literally saying let the banks default like let the banks fail and I always remember that because I remember thinking like see what you're saying about where like we suddenly you know they can't imagine a world where they let something happen and I think one of the biggest problems with the stock market, as well as just financial markets in general, is that we don't let them bear the risk of their investment. If you're going to argue for any form of investment and risk taking and entrepreneurship, and if you're arguing for that system and you think it's correct, you have to accept that if you're going to invest money, that you have to bear a level of risk. And one of the biggest problems I personally think with the financial crisis is that they weren't the financiers or weren't the people who were investing that necessarily bore the risk. It was actually standard everyday people, taxpayers. It's the government who's bailing them out with, you know, you know, austerity followed from 2008 crisis. And so we bailed out the banking system because, as you said, they couldn't really imagine causes of systemic risk. They couldn't really imagine it failing. But the thing is, at the end of the day, the cost to everyday people was quite high. And, you know, not only the economic uh, implications and the impact of like still right, having really high asset prices and all the issues with that, just everyday people having really high levels of debt, going into negative equity with their houses. And it's just, it was just kind of crazy to think that, you know, in a financial system, if you're going to argue for it, you have to say people have to, if you're going to invest, you have to take the risk that you're going to lose your money. Otherwise, if you're just going to get bailed out, of course, you're just going to try and make as much money as possible. Because if you're like, well, I'm just going to get bailed out, who cares? I, I can do what I want. Sorry, Alex, go ahead. No, I, I think the other thing that's really important, which touches on that, which is more of a political point, or public perception is the public perception of what happened which i think is right which is that people perceived that uh, wall street got an enormous bailout which they did um many of the people who were in charge at the time because of their contracts or whatever else who never got charged got got to walk away with enormous bonuses uh, in the hundreds of millions um i don't think any of them or maybe just one or two were ever charged for what happened the amount of people who lost their homes went to foreclosure that committed suicide that their entire lives were destroyed and they never got any type of support you know the same kind of the same um unemployment system still prevails in in, in america they never made any attempt to adjust that to how many people who lost um jobs etc and i think the elite in the states you know, and if you watch the documentary underneath, you'll see it. They just don't understand why people are angry. They go, look, you know, we did what we could. And these people are angry at us. I don't get it. You know, like, well, you're if you're so detached from reality that you don't know why they're pissed off, then it's not surprising a person like Trump comes along and at least initially in 2015, 16, made those points. Like, he's like, these guys are sharks on Wall Street. We need to, you know, they'll fuck us over if we let them. Now, he doesn't talk like that now, and he hasn't talked like that for a long time. But he did initially, and he definitely hit a nerve there. And Bernie Sanders did in the same way on the left, did the same thing. And I just, I think maybe the, the biggest thing from 2008 and before is, is just how detached the stock market is, but how detached the elite is, which is so wound up with the stock market. It was described by one Twitter, Twitter person, I can't remember who, as basically just a graph of rich people's feelings, which I think in, in essence is, is what it is now. Yeah, and you're both right. What it really does is hugely undermine the structures of capitalism, though. Because, <clears throat> like, for it to continue, people need to be going out and the money needs to be moving around. And there's more and more money, but it's in less and less hands. And so at some point, it, it just means that 
you know, what's going to happen? Where is that money going? Like, how much money does Jeff Bezos need? He's probably got more money than, like, you know, most people could spend in 12, 14 lifetimes. So, but yeah, you know, our rent is still going up or, you know, the price of milk is still going up. So at some point it will create a complete collapse. And, um, you know, obviously that's what we're, we're hoping for in our lifetime, just in which way it collapses and how terrible it is, is the, is the question <laughs> what we want to avoid. But at this point, I think so many people are just angry. Um, the, just seeing it fucking collapse at all would just be, it'd be like, yeah, fuck it. Who cares? Like, my life is already fucked beyond belief. There's no, um, there's no point, you know, propagating the system that continues this and is effectively, you know, socialism for the rich. So they get bailed out. But if, you know, if you're in financial trouble, then there's no safety net for you whatsoever. And any interaction that you will have with the state will be fucking horrible and violent because um they don't want you there and they'd rather that you just fucking go out and die in the street than get food basically so i didn't think what the gamestop people you know were doing was particularly left-wing but to use their own mechanisms that they have uh, against them was one interesting uh, obviously they'll you know, they'll fucking rush to make sure this doesn't happen again, then they'll find ways around it. Um, but I at least showed this, you know, what the system for what it is, again, not that we really needed reminding because it basically austerity was, um, it was libraries' faults for the economic crash. That was seen, that was basically the, the line that got trotted out. So hopefully... Not that I think it will be, uh, because I'm a pessimist, but hopefully, you know, it will have woken some people up to the way that the, the system operates. Yeah, it was just it was just more of a question than anything else, because I'm probably more of an optimist, maybe, about some of the economic systems, because I'm not sure how to classify what I fully believe. But I think in terms of, as well, do you think there's a difference in terms of how different state systems have dealt with different parts of the financial crises or economics in general? Because I think... I know because we're in a globalized world, things that's happened in the US are going to have a massive impact because it's such a large economy will, of course, have impacts everywhere else in the world. But I am just curious, do you think that there is, like, has there, have either of you, do you think there's different kind of outlooks in different parts of the world or is it just general pessimism about how the system is with stock markets and everything else like that? Sorry, Alex, go ahead. Um, I think if you look at how the European Union responded to 2008, it was worse than how America responded. Uh, they instituted austerity. They avoided doing a quantitative easing until relatively late. Uh, they hoisted troikas upon Ireland, upon Greece. What they did to Greece was criminal. I think in many ways they were worse than what they did. The America did. I mean, the difference was we have a, a more of a welfare state in Europe, but that didn't amount to much when you're fucking out or your business was being destroyed, uh, or for that matter. In the case of Ireland, hundreds of thousands of young people were leaving, um, as we did. We left at that time. Uh, we obviously came back, but a lot of people never came back. So I, I, I think, um, I suppose, like, the difference would be um, the acceptable face 
of austerity of kind of financial capitalism in Europe was okay well we need to be a bit more polite about it certain things we can't do we need to do things a certain way it's kind of technocratic whereas in the states um they actually the, the quantitative easing was done much quicker but the actual treatment of the poor was um you know uh, that much worse because there was no real uh social net for them you know so I think I, I don't think we should uh, anyone should get up on their high horse in Europe about how we responded and it goes without saying that how the British government responded was you know you know the 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 worst of both worlds you know they did quantitative easing earlier in Europe but the the the, the sheer vitriol and punishment of the poor you know I was living in Edinburgh at the time and even in Edinburgh was somewhat sheltered compared to somewhere in like in, in England. But dear God, they just I, I still remember the vitriol that was directed at the poor and as James said, blaming the financial collapse on libraries and on as if, you know, it's just I mean, James can talk more about that, but I don't think anyone would look at Europe or Britain as being somewhat better in its response to what happened. Yeah, but we're seeing it right now as well. And the way that the the COVID pandemic and the financial crisis that is coupled with that is happening we're seeing one you know ireland and the uk just refusing to do what needs to be done um to for what i don't understand because it's just like an ideological thing you know in new zealand that you're seeing people are going back to gigs and the economy is back opened and etc etc but that's because they did the hard thing early and quickly and effectively where here it's the fucking hokey cokey where like we're in lockdown, we're out lockdown too soon, then we're back in again. And that's obviously, it just means that we're going to be suffering from it for so much longer. And a big part of that is the, the, the refusal to actually just fucking put money in people's pockets for various things like proper sick pay, um, you know, proper unemployment pay, like, um, you know, giving food to people that need it, housing to people that need it, just absolute refusal to do it. Uh, this stuff always ends up undermining the economy at large because, you know, after the 2008 crisis, most people's wages haven't gone up. In fact, like, they've gone down, working conditions have gotten worse, they're longer, um and so you undermine your own system by that and that's how you end up with things like brexit happening and trump happening and beyond um whatever fresh hell that we're going to be finding over the next decades or so so it's it's just laid bare there but again the banks are creating money but we're not seeing it it's just going to to all the right hands so if you're not angry, then you really fucking should be furious. You should be to the point where, you know, that episode of The Simpsons where Homer's trying not to be angry and he keeps having these, like, lumps turn out of his neck. That's basically the point where I am these days, where if I'm not actively fucking screaming at something, um, I'm feeling sick because of just how fucking annoyed I am. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes to the essential, maybe our, our last kind of little bit we'll discuss, is is there a fucking alternative to this? Now, um, to basically corporate feudalism at this point, um, I think the obvious thing is, that, is to point out that 
of course there is. There was a society before the 1980s, 1990s. You could look, even if you're a conser relatively conservative, you can say, well, it wouldn't take an enormous amount. I mean, what it would now, because people are so resistant to any type of change, but you can don't even have to look back 50 years and see alternatives to type of credit controls, to the type of view of housing as a right. Um, you know, it's all these things are not particularly hard to imagine as an alternative. What is hard to imagine, I think, from my perspective, is, is that anything like that could be achieved through reform. I just don't see a, a force coming along uh, I mean, if you think about it, a person like Corbyn or Bernie Sanders was the closest thing. It was an, a person who, who was running through the traditional channels saying, hey, let's, we need to reform things. We need to um, change the way the economy works. And they were so attacked as to be unelectable. So if that is, as we often say on this podcast, if that is the reform uh, that's that uh, candidate that comes along, a, a Sanders or a Corbyn, and they get shot down, then no, it's not likely that things will change other than by an enormous collapse like happened in the 1930s. And I, and I don't say that with any glee. I'm a fucking historian. I know, and everybody and their mother knows what happened because of the collapse in the 30s. But I just don't see any other alternative. I just don't see any energy. Um, and I see the forces basically arrayed the propaganda forces arrayed against any type of reform as just being too great. And, that's, and I say that with no glee. Um, yeah, I, I, there are alternatives, but I just don't see the energy. So what comes out of that is a far more, a far poorer disorganized society that has to basically do what people did in the 30s during the Depression. I mean, yeah. The, I, I mean, as we're always saying on this podcast, there's basically overnight solutions solutions to most of the world's problems but people just refuse to to do them and ubi is often touted as as the cure-all but i really don't think it's it's a goer because you just know the way that they'll implement it if it did happen they'd effectively you know they wouldn't put a clause in where it would be stopping landlords from just putting your rent up by x amount you know the exact amount of um money that your ubi would be so you would effectively just see the money funneled up to the rich again uh and as you know as mark said as the as the contradictions in the system um multiply that's when it, it comes into crisis and we're not done by the, we're not done with the COVID crisis by any stretch of the imagination. The two, three years when we're finally out of this, we'll be feeling the financial implications of it for a long time in the same way that we've never really stopped living in 2008. Suzanne, if you've got any maybe upbeat things to say, because we usually try and uh, end the podcast on a more positive note, because uh, me and Alex are very doom and gloom. Uh, so if you've got anything positive that you can see in the future i mean i think maybe just i think i generally try to be optimistic and think about it like a lot of what both of you are saying is correct like it's hard to be optimistic during a time of like such kind of upheaval in lots of different ways but i think at least some of the positive things at grassroots that you see in local communities with people actually caring for other people um is quite nice to see at a kind of very micro level and i know we're talking a lot about systems that you know are kind of 
it not they're not you know they're kind of quite distant in some ways but they obviously have lots of implications for us in everyday lives and i think for me the optimism lies just in people around us and i do think yeah i do think some people are apathetic and i think that is an issue and i think also yes people are angry and have every right to be but i do think there's also a lot of care about what other people think and there is a basic human instinct for maybe I'm wrong, but I think, I guess where I have hope is that at local community level, people do care and people are trying to help other people. Not everyone, but there is, there is at least a large minority, if not a slight majority of people trying to do that. And I think there is, you know, policies that could be used and things like that. But I think, yeah, I think I'm just hopeful for that reason. I think, yes, I think we're going to be, have a lot of pain to maybe change in whatever systems we need to put in, whether it is UBI or some other ways that you can look at it or other policies. But I think for me, what's most important, even beyond the policies, is just to have a change in perception in people as well as just changing in behavior and kind of having a shift away from trying to always focus on just, for me, the issue is the perceptive kind of obsession with profit seeking all the time. I don't think there's a problem personally um, with having some form of profits available, but I think hopefully shifting people's a little bit of how we live and things like that and so i think there i think i think it is possible i think you people like aoc in in the us and stuff like that who do try and talk about a new new green deal which is reflective of fdr's new deal after the 19 you know when he and in the 19 like after the 1930s and things like that and i think there is hope i just think yeah i just i think that's probably where i try and see it i don't know if anyone else has any other upbeat kind of thoughts uh no i don't think so because no no i'm yeah. i'm pretty i'm pretty much uh, no and you're in there to the collapse of the system yeah like, the, like, the past... some, there's some good things about the system sorry james go ahead well the past like 10 12 episodes have all been uh our um our proclamations of the the collapse and how it's going to collapse and why it's going to collapse so we're not really in the the situation where we're suddenly going to turn around and be like, actually, it might all work out for the end. Uh, Alex, what's your closing thought there? My closing thought would be this, and this is as close to optimism as I'm going to get. In the same way that when we did episodes and, and any, any anarchists or socialists who are interested in these type of ideas looks for examples of them having occurred, they tend to occur in, in the micro. As, as um, Suzanne um, was referring to the micro, I think um, maybe you have to look to that. I just don't see any type of like systemic change happening. I think you can see, you can hope for communities and for regional areas, uh, or you know, changing, evolving, learning to deal with the with um, the kind of systemic problems. I just don't see the type of you know globalized system that's that's so financialized now. I just don't see it reforming itself. Um, I see it being overthrown, to be honest with you, and, and unfortunately not by the left. Uh, that's a very depressing part. But I, I think you can make the case um, that you, there are chinks of light through it, but they're just not uh, on a global systemic level. Um, so, yeah, that's our ray of sunshine at the end of the episode there. So you've been listening to the Anime podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. Um, I have been your host, James. We had Alex as well. Say hello. Goodbye, Alex. Goodbye from me, Alex. Okay, yeah, you didn't quite do the joke the same way there, so um, uh, B, B minus. Either way, it's still not funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we're saying goodbye to um, uh, Susanna as well. Bye, guys. Right, guys, so uh, enjoy your, your week as it's coming up.
uh, remember to like the podcast, uh, send us any notes, uh, share it with your enemies, your friends, your your loved ones, your hated ones. And, and we'll speak and to also, you next week. And also make sure that if you've listened to the podcast and you haven't heard before, we're looking for more co-hosts, your regular to semi-regular co-hosts. So if you do like what we say and you think you'd like to um, get up on a bully pulpit, or not really because we we're not police, but uh, on a soapbox, uh, please do contact us at uh, on our social media or at anarchistreadings at gmail.com. Bye, folks.